Hi, my name is Christina Wolford, and I have been growing up here as part of this church family. I am so glad to be back home this weekend, focused on campus ministries. I have the privilege of serving with campus or crew among today's students, and the scripture reading today is found in Acts 17, 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jew and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar in this inscription to the unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and of earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would not seek him, and so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of our own poets have said. We are his offsprings. Therefore, since we are God's offsprings, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made in human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he has commanded all people everywhere to repent, for he has sent a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul, and they believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and many number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, good morning. My name is Jeff Leo, and I'm the pastor of college and young adult ministries here at Lake Avenue Church. It's good to be with you. 
especially the young adults and the college students over here. It's always good to see them. Um, I'm excited for this day because this is our first ever, to our knowledge, Campus Missions Weekend. And this is the job that I have loved for the last 14 years. I've been doing campus work for 14 years. I took two years to study, but I still got to volunteer with my wife, who is on staff with the university, uh, doing work with graduate students and faculty. I'm excited because God did amazing things in my life and through my life in college. That's why we wore our school colors today, those of you who did. I hope God has done something in your life and through your life during the time that you were there, but also because of what you learned there. That's why we do Campus Missions Weekend, because so many of us benefit, in fact, all of us benefit from the things that come out of the university. I can still remember the formative moments in my college life, so many of them. One of them in particular stands out. I was sitting in honors physics. It's just a small group of us who dared to take honors physics. The professor strolled in casually. He had just returned from Chile, where he was doing some research through a fancy telescope aimed at the stars. And he said to the classroom, you heard it here first, the universe is expanding. I thought that was cool. I didn't know exactly what he meant. And I you know, learned later that uh, Hubble had done the work to demonstrate that the universe was expanding some decades before, but the work that Dr. McKay was doing at Michigan confirmed that there are these things called high redshift quasars, and that they are moving away from us faster and faster, and therefore that the, the universe is expanding. My little mind started thinking about what that meant for life. And I won't pretend I know how to explain this stuff. In fact, I only took honors physics because I was told by some friends that they don't give anything lower than a B when you take honors physics. And so, of course, that's the class that I was going to take. My curiosity in science, and the reason why I even took physics at all, was because my curiosity began when I was a child. You know, we would run around the backyard, and I'm sure that at some point, we uttered these words about this force that we didn't understand when we used the phrase cosmic rays. We would, we would shoot cosmic rays at each other or something like that. In fact, the Fantastic Four, decades before I even learned to say this phrase, the Fantastic Four in the comic books were depicted as transforming because of the cosmic rays that they encountered from outer space. I would learn later that this phrase, cosmic rays, comes from right here in Pasadena. Nobel Prize winner Robert Andrew Milliken over at Caltech was doing some experiments to determine what were these invisible forces that shot right through us? What was this cosmic radiation that was coming and hitting us, we now know these to be gamma rays that come through our atmosphere and shoot through our bodies. And it is those gamma rays by which we can measure and detect the rate of travel of these high redshift quasars. So many things come and connect themselves 
in my life right here in Pasadena. My childhood, my college years, and now the ministry that we get to do on campuses like Caltech. I tell you this story because hopefully it's clear to you that ideas are really important. They shape your children in ways that you might not even know. My parents didn't know what cosmic rays were per se, but there we were shouting that phrase out, came from Pasadena. One of the cool things about universities everywhere, but especially the ones around here, like Art Center, PCC, Le Cordon Bleu, Caltech, so many of the things that we use on a daily basis, the things that we rely upon for daily life, like cell phone cameras, things that we take for granted, the things that we eat, the people who prepare our food and innovate our cuisine, these things happen right here in Pasadena. And that makes me excited because I get to take part in shaping what that looks like in an indirect way sometimes, more direct some other times. I get to tag along with my wife, Lisa, who works with uh, graduate students and faculty. And one of the coolest things I have ever gotten to do was to go to Catalina Island once a year with my wife. We go there and um, there's something called faculty camp, university's faculty camp where uh, professors from many different institutions, all the way from the East Coast, Las Vegas, APU, Cal State LA, all over, they come together and they study the Bible. And they ask God to show them and they discuss it together. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus on these campuses, these very different campuses, as different as Biola and UCLA? What does it mean to follow Jesus in those places? I get the privilege to watch them discuss that. And our Bible study ranged all these different topics. My jaw was on the floor. I mean, metaphorically, I kept it closed because I didn't want to be impolite. But I sat there thinking, wow, we're talking about Plato. We're talking about ethics. We're talking about all these things because everyone brought their disciplines to bear on this Bible study because ideas are important and they belong to Jesus. I love what God makes possible because there are followers of Jesus at every level of the university. But I'm not so sure that everyone shares my enthusiasm about the university and the promise that I believe that it holds. Let me tell you why I think that. I've watched too many discouraged young college students, including some that have grown up here, walk away from churches that can't handle their questions. I've heard young adults ask these questions over and over again, and they tell me their stories. They say to me, I asked why God took away my dad, but there was no answer. I asked whether cutting-edge science is compatible with faith, but there was no answer. I asked whether God could love my gay family member, but there was no answer. I've listened to faculty from across the country talk about how difficult it is to participate meaningfully in the lives of their church when, to put it mildly, no one knows how to appreciate what they do. No one understands what they do. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, hold on, Jeff, I do have answers to questions like those and I appreciate everyone. I believe you, I believe that that's true, but I still need you to hear me. My observation has been 
that folks are asking these kinds of questions and the stakes are still very high and that we do not have the luxury of time. My observation has been that the kinds of questions that are being asked now are a shift from the kinds of questions that used to be asked. So I want you to think about this. What if we are shouting answers to questions that no one is asking anymore? The solution is not to shout louder. Instead, I'd rather for us to learn from the Word of God. Paul's example this morning is an impressive one, one that not many of us could dare to emulate. But it does teach us this morning that at every level of every campus, colleges and universities need local churches like ours and Christians like you to see with the eyes of faith and to love with a heart of obedience what God is doing on those campuses with the people there, the ideas there, and the institution itself. Every campus needs that. I love hearing about God's work in people, but the book of Acts shows us repeatedly that wherever God goes, He changes the entire world where He was, not just individual lives. And so when you look at Acts chapter 17, verse 16, we learn how Paul experiences that the gospel answers the most important questions of the day. The gospel speaks to important ideas. Look at verse 16 with me. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. And some of your translations say, his spirit was provoked within him. Greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. There's a couple ways to read that. And it might say something about how you're oriented toward the university. One way that I've encountered many times is to think that Paul strode into Athens. He saw a city filled with idols, and he was disgusted. After all, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And for there to be the kind of idolatry that was rampant in that way, so many statues, naturally he would have been disgusted. Or perhaps he might have pitied them for their foolishness. Let me ask you this question. What do pity and disgust do when you're trying to build rapport and relationship? Pity and disgust only distances you from the people that you're trying to reach. It's hard to convince me that he pitied them or was disgusted by them. But those who are uh, disgusted by the university or who pity the university, they don't end up with meaningful ministries within the university to the institution itself. Sure, they may call students to come out from the university to avoid some kind of contamination that they're afraid of, but ministry within the university is something different. Our high school graduates, our high school, uh, the class of 2015 is getting ready to graduate soon. I was able to tell them this morning as they were sitting over here that there's another way to look at what they're about to do as they graduate from high school, and it is this that they are becoming missionaries, going to every place that God calls them, and not allowing something to happen to them, not allowing college simply to happen to them. In fact, our missionaries, Wendy and Romero uh, Marchena, they, they have a report that you can read out on the plaza about a young woman named Susan who started a Bible study within her sorority. 
And over the past couple years, because of the power of God and the gospel, nine of her sorority sisters have responded in faith to Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. You can read about that on the plaza as as you interact with them. Now, I, I confess, I'll be the first one. When I first got to campus, I did not have positive feelings toward fraternities and sororities. I had no intentions of going and hanging out with um, the, the frat guys. We call them the frat bros. We, we had no intentions of hanging out with them, or I had no intentions. Um, and then I had an Acts 15 moment. When a missionary came to tell me Just like Peter told the Jerusalem council that the Spirit of God goes out to them just as the Spirit of God came to you. And he does his work there despite all of your faithlessness. God does his work. And Jeff, you can't stop him. I think if I had to do it over again, I might have rushed a fraternity for the sake of mission. Because college doesn't happen to us. No, God sends us there for mission. And so this morning... I myself am rebuked by what I now repeat to you at every level of every campus. Colleges and universities need local churches and Christians to see and to love what God is doing there in the people, ideas, and institutions of the university. When we continue to look at who Paul encountered in the Epicureans and the Stoics, there's a couple ways of reading this here too. Some of us, when we look at this, we think there's nothing worth learning unless it has a stamp of Christian on it. And so when we see the Epicureans, we describe them as depraved pleasure seekers who live only for food, drink, and sex. And then we look at the Stoics and we say, these are fun-hating pain seekers who live only to kill the buzz. When you stereotype the Epicureans and Stoics this way, they are very easy to dismiss, and naturally Paul defeats them in their foolish philosophy. But Paul actually shows us that he does something else when he talks to them with great respect. He shows that he understands the deep questions that they have about the nature of existence and about God. He knows what they care about. You see, the Epicureans and the Stoics, these were the philosophers who didn't like what was going on in Athens. Yeah, the city was full of statues, but the Epicureans believed that you should not attribute to the gods what they did not do. They sought to understand the natural life, food, drink, the body. They didn't want the Athenians to be superstitious any longer. They were just forced to go along with it, and they didn't have a better solution. Paul knew that, and so he says, this kind of superstition is not good. Look at what he says in verses 21 through 23. Luke inserts this comment that the Athenians like to sit around and think about new ideas. Why? Because in verse 23, Paul says, you have an altar to an unknown God. They had to do this all day just in order to cover their bases. This was what biblical scholars call Athenian superstition. Cover your bases just in case the gods get angry with you. And in verse 22, Paul says, I see that in every way you're very religious. And even in our language, the English language, religious can have a kind of dual meaning. It could be a kind of weak compliment. Yeah, you're religious, you're spiritual folks. But it could also be a kind of backhanded compliment. You're, You're a little bit superstitious. And then in verses 24 and 25, Paul says, 
Listen, Epicureans and Stoics, I get it. God does not live in these statues. He doesn't live in temples. He doesn't need to be served as if he needed anything. And in verses 28 and 29, if we live and move and have our being in this God whose offspring we are, then it doesn't make any sense that these statues that you worship can't move and live and breathe. It doesn't make any sense. And so here sit the Epicureans and Stoics. Yes, that's right. That's right, Paul. Paul understood Paul was able to run from city to city as he was being persecuted and answer all the questions that they were asking about God. It's really rather remarkable. And I want to ask, what about us? What are the questions that we face in our time? My friend, James Chong, has written a book called Real Life that I recommend to you to think about, in which he's described the major questions that have faced different generations over time. What he demonstrates for us is that the question has been shifting. For the baby boomers, I see you here in the room, his research suggests that the predominating question of the baby boomer generation is, what is true? How do I know it? What is absolute truth? And if I can find it, I will orient my life around the absolute truth so I know which way to go and what to believe. Makes sense to me. But then came along the Gen Xers, of which I'm a part. And my friend James, his research suggests that the predominating question for my generation has not been what is true, but what is real. When we look at commercials, we look at them with great skepticism. We think that they're just a pack of lies. What is truth anyway? And who can really know it? There's this kind of radical skepticism that comes in my generation. What is real? And then following my generation, the millennial generation. Now, I'm talking about you, and I know you're in the room, so I will talk to you. (laughs) My friend James suggests that the millennial generation is asking not what is true, not what is real, but what is good. And I hope you've seen that that shapes the way we do ministry in college and young adult. The question, what is good? How do I make a difference in the world? Is what I think about and what I do here at Lake Avenue Church making a good impact on the place we live and have our communities? It's a different set of questions you can see. And none of these questions is more important than any of the other ones. It's just that different questions are being asked by different people at different times. So someone will come up to me at Lake Avenue and say, Jeff, why don't we do more apologetics-type ministries? And I reassure them, as I reassure you this morning, I cut my teeth on apologetics, my ministry teeth. I love the rational, intelligent defense of the Christian faith. It is an indispensable tool in the work that I do. But in the other ear, a young parent will, at, will tell me, I don't know what to tell my kids about same-sex marriage. Now, if you're concerned about what is true, you will approach that question one way. If you're concerned about what is good, you will approach that question another way. And it is, as Pastor Greg has described to us, the generational boundaries are really difficult to cross. I suggest to you this morning, it's in part because we are asking different questions from generation to generation. And I know that we need each other. We need all of these questions. And we need the wisdom of the gospel to come to bear on all of the issues that face our day and age. We must know our audience. 
as Paul did. And I'm saying to you today that when I get questions, because not everyone is asking questions, when I get questions, they are about what is good. I mentioned same-sex marriage, a huge question for our day. What about racial diversity? What does that mean? What about economic justice? What is just? What about the way we use science and technology? Why are we promoting it so hard for our economy? Does it do good? What about environmental sustainability? These questions come at me all the time. But let me warn you, brothers and sisters, when we dismiss these questions as politically correct concerns that only young people ask, we guarantee our irrelevance. But we will not withhold the gospel and the wisdom of the gospel from these pressing issues of our day. The gospel says something. Paul demonstrates that this is so. You could dismiss the Epicureans and the Stoics, but Paul does not because the gospel speaks wisdom into every corner of creation. Thanks be to God. If we do not do this, to whom will young people turn instead? You see, schools like Caltech offer credibility when it comes to things like science, when the church does not always. Schools like Art Center offer beauty, and they shape our culture. Schools like PCC are the start for so many young people's futures. It brings down the barrier so that people can begin. That's where they'll turn for their future. And that is why I say to you again, at every level of every campus, colleges and universities need local churches and Christians who see and love what God is doing in those places. And then, when we go there, God works by the power of his gospel. He always does. He always has. And you see this in verses 30 and 31, where Paul teaches us that the gospel demands a response from everyone who hears it. Listen to what it says in verse 30 and 31. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. This is a slap in the face. Now, he's just been telling them, listen, I get your concerns, but now you have no excuse. God commands every person everywhere to repent. Why? Because now we know something. You didn't know this God? Let me tell you who he is. God himself raised Jesus from the dead, and he will be the one that comes to judge. Resurrection was a hard pill for them to swallow. It was very difficult for them to understand what Paul was talking about. In fact, Bible scholars, when you look at what they comment on this passage, they, they see this verse that says, you seem to be preaching foreign divinities, plural. Bible scholars take a look at that, and they see perhaps it was the case that they thought Paul was preaching this person named Jesus and this other deity named the resurrection. They just couldn't wrap their minds around what was going on. Not much has changed about that. The resurrection is indeed a stumbling block. It's difficult. It's a miracle that any of you have believed that a man could die and then rise again. It is a miracle of faith, is it not? But wouldn't you agree that resurrection changes everything? It changes all of life. And so Paul became very clear at this point, idolatrous superstition must end. Because the God that you didn't know has appointed Jesus, whom I do know, 
to show you what is justice. He is the Lord that created the heavens and the earth. And he had determined the seasons and boundaries of every nation under heaven that people might grope for him. You don't know him and you grope like blind men though you claim to see. This Jesus, he is not a philosophical idea. No, he is wisdom incarnate come from heaven to be with us. Thanks be to God. And because God works in his gospel, people respond to it. We have Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Damaris, and some others. We're not really sure who Damaris is. This woman might have been a philosopher who was there around that time. But Luke does tell us who Dionysius is. He is an Areopagite. He is a member of that council of judges that some centuries prior had sentenced Socrates to death by drinking poison. So Paul walks into the marketplace. He begins to preach the good news. The people hear his strange teaching, and the NIV says they took him. It's more like they grabbed him. They grabbed him and brought him to this council that issued a decree of execution to Socrates. This was game time for Paul, and he knew it. So he stood and he delivered the gospel, the good news, and Dionysius responded in faith. Think about what that means. Someone who had been entrusted to ensure that the Athenian way of life was secure now becomes a follower of Jesus. Resurrection changes everything. That must have shaken up their world, don't you think? And that's what makes my job so much fun here. I ask myself, who is the next Dionysius among you? I really do. My, the young adults I get to work with uh, hear me say this all the time, but I believe in them so much. Among them are the next Dionysiuses of our world. I don't have ambitions for global domination. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. But I do love it when young people come to positions of real influence who can change the world where they are and that they are faithful to Jesus there. Nothing makes me more excited than to develop those kinds of disciples who will do that for the sake of the gospel. And when I first started walking around PCC and Art Center and Caltech, I began to meet students who were on every student council. I began to meet staff who were believers, faithfully serving the student body. I began to meet administrators who love what they do and want to make sure things are fair and just in the university. And I've now met faculty who follow Jesus and want to shape young minds for the sake of the gospel. Quasars? Jesus. It goes from there to there. To all of you who are here this morning, who are part of the university communities around us, may God bless you today, and may he prosper the work of your hands and of your minds. It is because of you that I have learned that at every level of every campus, colleges and universities need local churches and Christians who see and love what God is doing there. This is one way that we know for sure that the world Christian movement is moving forward. God has brought every nation, people, tribe, and language to this place to learn. So many of our missionaries work with international students. You can meet them on the plaza. In fact, Sherry and Chad Lawrence write this report that you can read out there about this young woman named Chica who became a follower of Jesus in a Bible study at UCLA. 
Because her life was transformed by the gospel, she returned to Japan to plant churches there. Amen. Thanks be to God. Many of you are conversation partners with international students. Some of you are host families to international students. Because God is bringing the nations here, and because God uses the university in this way, the world Christian movement advances by the mighty right arm of God. The gospel goes to the ends of the earth in these ways, and I am so glad we have missionaries in our midst who are filling the university with the gospel. And now you can participate too. I want to tell you two very easy ways to do this. The first is this. My invitation is that sometime in the next few weeks that you would take a walk on one of our beautiful college campuses in the Pasadena area. From the William Carey International University to Art Center. Think about it this way. Go to Caltech and stumble upon one of the Nobel Prize winning experiments that are just laying out for you to trip over. Go to the Art Center Student Gallery where some of our own students have works that are entered into that gallery. It really is a window into their heart and mind, and the picture is not always pretty, but it's always fascinating. Go to the mirror pool over at PCC where 30,000 students from 90 countries are doing their best to begin their lives and their futures, training for a career or moving on to the next academic task. But don't just go there. Don't just take a walk. Pray for people. Pray for the people that you see. Pray for the staff, the students, the administrators, the faculty, so that these ideas that work their way into our culture, that they are used for the kingdom's sake, that the university itself might be used for the kingdom's sake. Take that kind of walk in the next few weeks. Would you do that? The other thing that you can do is to take out this insert from your worship folder. You can go ahead and do it now because we want you to begin filling it out. There are many ways that we are inviting you this weekend to participate with us, campus missionaries. The first one is this, at the top of the list on the right column, which you're going to take at the end of the service. You're going to tear it off and turn it in as you exit the worship center. We want you to think about sending somebody to the Urbana Student Missions Conference. The Urbana Student Missions Conference. Every three years, you're going to see me up here, and I'm going to plead with you to send somebody to the Urbana Student Missions Conference because we want young adults to think of themselves as missionaries wherever they go. Life doesn't just happen to you. You happen to be a missionary. So if you're a young adult in this room, I hope you'll consider attending with us this December. We're going as a group. It's going to be amazing as it was every three years, as it is every three years. If you're not a young adult anymore, would you consider sending a young adult to Urbana so that we could together there ask God in that special set-apart time and space, what does God want for our lives? We invite you to partner with our campus missionaries financially, in prayer, to advocate for them in your small groups, or in your Sunday school classes, to volunteer your time and energy with them on their campuses. You might know some of them, and so make sure you get their prayer letters by indicating which ones you want to hear from. You might be an alum of a campus, which would be a great way to reconnect with the place where God began to work in you. If you're a staff, student, or faculty, we want to know who you are because we want to walk with you. We want to develop your sense of mission there and make sure that you're enjoying his presence. 
as you are on mission to your campus. Let us know who you are. We care so much that the gospel goes forward to every corner of creation. This is one very effective way to do that here at Lake Avenue Church. And for its effectiveness, brothers and sisters, let us pray. God, we do pray that your gospel would go forward. We know that you are powerful and that this is your business. When you do your work, the gospel makes its way into people's hearts. It infects ideas and institutions that they might be redeemed by you. We pray that you would work that work that you do so that even the university would become a tool for your kingdom. We pray it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.